just because the injectables work really well for some people does not mean that the oral um, daily medications are necessarily inferior for some people. Different strokes for different folks, right? So different people are allowed to pick the option that's gonna work best for them. And this is just talking about possibilities and options about ways we can get interventions in the hands of more people that need it. Welcome back to 20 Minute Health Talk. I'm David Reich-Hale. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. David Rosenthal of Northwell Health, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis from the CDC, and Dr. Charles Gonzalez from the New York State Department of Health. In this episode, we cover the benefits and implementation of the recently approved PrEP injectables, which adds a new choice for patients at risk for HIV. Dr. Rosenthal, what is PrEP? And how significant are these new injectables in the effort to end the HIV epidemic? Great. So PrEP has been around for about 10 years now. It's a biobehavioral intervention, which means it's both medication as well as being um, contact and working with a healthcare provider to decrease your risk for transmission of HIV. So we used to call PrEP one pill once a day to prevent HIV. But in December, we actually had a new injectable medication, which was released that allowed us to be able to get an injection every two months once you get through the, the startup period. And that helps you be able to prevent yourself from getting HIV to decrease your risk. Sort of like some people are interested in birth control to prevent pregnancy, PrEP is a preventative modality that helps you prevent get yourself getting HIV. You said it's every two months? Right. So the injectable right now is actually, you, you, the way it's dosed is, is it's once and then it's another month. So it's two months in a row and then it's every other month is what the current guidance is for that injectable medication. And how long has this been, you said in market, it's only been since the end of last year? Right, so it's brand new. Um, so it came out basically as F with FDA approval in December, um, and Dr. Deskalakis's group actually was able to kind of put together some guidelines in anticipation of that coming out with some new guidelines in 2021 that I'm sure he can tell us about kind of the importance of being able to use the injectable PrEP as part of the, the changing the direction of PrEP and how we see that. Dr. Deskalakis? Great. Thank you. No. So um, really, um, we've heard what this adds. It is really about choices. You know, there are people who are interested in not having HIV medicines around their home. Um, and I think that for some people, um, this could mean a really important innovation that makes them more comfortable engaging with HIV prevention. And as, and I, you know, really agree. And the sort of spectrum of, uh, of um, interventions that come along with PrEP, um, whether that's testing or other counseling, harm reduction and other, and other services that are critical to uh, preventing HIV as well as other infections. I think that one of the uh, challenges for uh, injectable PrEP is that um, its implementation is complex. So I think we're hearing from, uh, from frontline providers that really working this new uh, injectable into the flow of what they do every day um, can be challenging and also uh, complex. But I think that not dissimilar from other uh, other prep interventions in the past, um, there is definitely a lead-in period. Speaking of that, this drug also has an interesting complexity, which is that there's a there's a long tail. And what I mean by that is, when you stop the drug, um, it requires some additional pre-exposure prophylaxis strategy um, for about a year after. So, um, though it I think is really wonderful from the perspective of giving people options who are 
interested in not having HIV medicines in their home or around or don't want the burden of taking a pill uh, once a day or for that matter, um, for some populations, gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men and uh, transgender women um, and others take on-demand pre-exposure prophylaxis. So that 2-1-1 strategy that is not technically um, recommended above daily prep, but is an option that's provided in our new guidance or guidelines that came out just recently. Um, so that tail is actually a big deal because people... Um, potentially will have uh, drug levels in their bodies for uh, up to a year after they stop the injection. So it's really important to have a really good conversation with patients so they know um, what they're getting themselves into. Though, again, um, I think that it has a really important role for lots of people, um, given the addition of a choice. So I think the implementation challenges you talked about are really important. Um, one of the ones that I know I've seen is, is that there's a huge need for young adults or people that are younger um, that don't necessarily take any other medications. And so starting a daily prep medication was very challenging for them for medication adherence purposes. So one of the real advantages of this medication is, is that you can get your injection in the doctor's office on a regular basis. But the challenge that we're meeting with them is, is that those patients want to start prep fast. And unfortunately, the implementation challenges we're having is, is that currently we need to order the medication, wait for it to be delivered, wait for that to happen, do an authorization, and that takes time. And so that's the biggest challenge that we've really had, at least in my, my hands, um, for getting PrEP um, with cabotegravir injectable into the hands of younger um, patients specifically. And can any of you talk a little bit about how we got to this point? There have been two large um, HIV prevention trials in the order of hundreds of people who have been on the intervention. There's one that that they're continuing as an open label extension as well uh, throughout the world. So it's it's a, a fair amount of, of folks that have gone through the intervention. And, and it, you know the studies are remarkable in that when you look at the just effectiveness of of the injectable, probably because of the lack of issue around adherence, it looks like it's better than oral prep. That doesn't mean that actually oral prep is probably worse if used like close to perfectly. Um, but um, perfection is easier when you don't have to take a pill a day. So that's, I think, where, where the injectable is really exciting. I'll also add, there's a lot coming uh, in the, through the pipeline. And I will say, and I think it's fair to say, only some of them will be uh, will look demedicalized because many of them are going to be long acting, potentially injectable or implants. Some of them could be a implant once a year, which means that there's an opportunity to sort of loosen up some of the uh, some of the uh, some of uh, of the medical interventions. And one thing I think that's also important, right, is, is that there's differences. So just because the injectables work really well for some people does not mean that the oral um, daily medications are necessarily inferior for some people. A lot of people find it very easy to take a pill once a day. They find it very effective to be able to have control over that on their own and to be able to kind of take that intervention on their own. And so I think that the key option, which I think both of you mentioned, is, is that different strokes for different folks, right? So different people are allowed to pick the option that's going to work best for them. And this is just talking about possibilities and options about ways we can get interventions in the hands of more people that need it. Exactly so. And it's not as if, you know, uh, oral prep is, um, is a second hand here. It's, you know, the, there is no evidence that one is more potent than the other or one, it's just, it just matches to adherence. And the more we can tailor prevention to one's lifestyle, the easier it will be for its acceptance and for its you know, general use. And there's no reason why you can't switch back and forth. 
what works for periods of time, right? The other thing is the question of adherence, how this fits into lifestyles, perfectly injectable, works fantastic for a long haul trucker, for example, you know, anyone who changes time zones, an airline steward, any of those things, these things are, are marvelous. There are still about 38,000 new HIV cases each year. What other strategies are in place to reduce these numbers? Now, of course, they're nowhere near where they were during the peak of the HIV-AIDS crisis. Dr. Daskalakis, give us the national view on this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that we've seen that there's about, about, been about an 8% decrease between uh, 2020 and five years before. So that's good. Um, but, you know, to accelerate that decrease, it's, it's really not just all about prep. Um, it's really about the sort of full toolkit that we have for HIV prevention. And so that spans the gamut from uh, testing um, because that really is you know, the the key that unlocks the door to so many wonderful status neutral strategies um, that are good for people regardless of their HIV status. And so that means prep for people who could benefit from it um, and actually just engagement in prevention, even if they don't go on prep to make sure that um, that conversation continues in an assessment and reassessment. And then also U equals U. So from the perspective that treatment um, is in fact prevention, you know, I think that that um, that's all a part of it. So we have work to do not only in, in prep, so about 23 to 24% of people with indications for PrEP are on it in the United States based on our estimates. And our viral suppression rate is uh, a little bit under 65%. And so there is work to do. And I think when you put all of these things together, what happens is you hit a sweet spot and potentially you get to drive infections down faster. And so places with very high viral suppression, um, as well as good PrEP uptake, tend to do really well. And so we could even leave the U.S. for a moment and talk about London. They're fascinating with like a high viral suppression rates like in the 90s and a really high prep uptake in some in, in, in some of their key populations. And like the effect is really like it, it's potentiating to decrease infections more rapidly. And so when you look at the, at the country, that means a lot of work to do in the South. And some of what that has to do with is, um, is you know, healthcare access and stigma along with a lot of other complexity. Not to say that there's not work to do in New York, but I think that there's some really good things and good models of, of how when you get to that sweet spot, you're able to drive infections down even faster. So, Dimitri, I want to pick up on a couple of those themes, um, and I think Charles will then can talk about the New York experience with that. But what you talked about was is the concept of really status-neutral HIV prevention. And what that means is starting the whole concept of this with a test. So by offering HIV testing, by offering STI testing, by, by opening the conversation from every healthcare provider at every point of access we can, by giving people the test, then we're able to let people know what's going on. So I always tell patients that knowledge is power, and the test is giving them that, that knowledge. Then if the test is negative, then we're able to take people towards a prevention modality. How can we prevent you from getting HIV? How can we prevent you from, from getting another STI? Is that frequent testing? Is that a prevention modality? Is it condoms? Is it um, you know knowing more about your partners? Whatever choices you're making. And if your status is positive, then how can we take you from being positive to being virally suppressed like you were talking about? So really breaking down that cascade, starting with the status neutral prevention. But the key concept that leads to the top of that is, is in order to do the status neutral 
approach, we have to have providers that are offering that testing to everyone that is opening the door all the time. And I think one of the challenges we have with PrEP is people say, oh, PrEP's so complicated, it's so difficult. And I want to remind people, especially primary care providers, that PrEP is one pill once a day in its simplest form. It is as easy as prescribing um, a blood pressure medication or an asthma medication or a diabetes medication. Um, the labs, you get to see your patients four times a year. It's a very straightforward modality that not only needs to be provided by people that have experience in the HIV and AIDS and, and the ID world, but really by primary care providers to really make a big difference because by having more of those people out there to do it, then we're going to make a big difference. And it's hard to get folks to discuss these things in terms of risk because immediately um, the barriers go up um, and the feeling that folks are being targeted because of their race or, or their behavior. And one of the things that the beautiful things that Dr. Daskalakis did when he was in New York was to develop the sort of status neutral. As you mentioned, you come in and you get an HIV test and then the discussions begin. Uh, it's an incredibly helpful way of opening up the discussion in a non-judgmental way if it's standard and that's the only way to proceed. Well, Dr. Gonzalez, and you, you just touched on health equity because it underlies all of the topics we are talking about today. And its importance was outlined in, there was an annual call to action letter issued by the New York State's Department of Health. And it named the DOH's number one priority as taking decisive action to address persistent disparities in new HIV diagnosis and HIV viral suppression rates for black New Yorkers. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, I'm... Actually, I can talk a lot about this, okay? But one of the things is, uh, you know, whether we talk about you know, Institute for Healthcare Improvements, white paper 216, um, we have to acknowledge that health organizations alone do not have the power to affect multiple determinants of health, but they do have a responsibility to address those health inequities directly during clinical interactions and in order to improve patients' health and quality of life. With us, what we've done is try to hone down as much as possible on data as opposed to, um, as opposed to misperceptions, all right? We know that communities that are marginalized and or, or living in marginalized conditions, and we use the word marginalized conditions, uh, you know, all you have to do is think of COVID, are those social, political, and economic conditions contributing to health itself and health care inequities. Um, the term we use is to resist that tendency to define marginalization as a characteristic of individuals or groups rather than conditions in which they live. For example, mental health issues such as anxiety, depression, substance use, along with the experience of trauma, whether it's interpersonal community or, or partner violence, are more prevalent in populations experience socioeconomic disadvantage. Uh, another example would be like in New York's Manhattan Upper East Side, there's 11 year median life expectancy, expectancy rather difference between those folks and those living in, uh, in Brooklyn's Brownsville. And these things are quite extraordinary. What we have found is that going, working with community-based organizations, folks that know their community are the best means by which um, messaging 
both whether it be COVID or PrEP, are, are, they, are the best means. It's not that healthcare providers are not trusted, but the community needs to be to understand that or expect and should demand that we are responsible to the community for the for health and their population. And we've done this in certain communities by targeting not the individuals, but the community-based organizations to network as best as possible with um, healthcare providers to, to be trusted community messengers as well as advocates for the community to access such things as um, contraception, uh, PrEP, post-exposure prophylaxis, or to deal with chronic diseases such as diabetes, which are rampant in the in folks with lower socioeconomics. And that's, you know, it's 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 trying to get both um, the community-based organizations and the healthcare organizations to work effectively together um, and not in isolation. And with that, really, I think that one of the things that we've we've noticed is is that we're seeing, um, you know, increased numbers of H. We're seeing the, the the individuals who are acquiring HIV that are newly diagnosed with HIV that are unfortunately coming approximately two thirds from communities of color, um, and we're seeing unfortunately the uptake of PrEP to be much 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 smaller in those exact same communities. So we still have work to do, I think, both in the state as well as nationally, um, kind of talking about ways that we can help write the prevention modalities to make sure that we're really targeting. Them, not just to people that want to get them, but to people that need them, the highest um, population that are currently acquiring HIV. And I think part of the reason that we're having challenges with that is often stigma, um, both within the communities and also within the providers that help care for those, those communities. And so I think that those are really big challenges that we need to look at. And I think one of the things, Dr. Descalacas, when you were in New York City, that you really um, kind of were a very early adopter of was the U equals U message, um, or undetectable equals untransmittable, signing on to the Prevention Access Campaign. Um, and I think that it's very exciting that we're able to kind of take a look and see where the science is and where there is and be able to take that science and focus on the science rather than the stigma, um, which is the message for Prevention Access Campaign. And how do we take that, which we did for those that are living with HIV, using a status neutral approach, how do we kind of maneuver that into the HIV prevention world now? Dr. Daskalakis, from your time in New York City, you were integral in designing and leading many HIV and STD programs. That includes, and Dr. Rosenthal just mentioned this, the U equals U campaign. Can you share more details? U equals U is an incentive um, to people living with HIV. And I, I know my personal experience providing care for folks, footnote, I'm about to start doing it in Atlanta too, um, after a little pause, but um, is that, you know, there's something liberating to people that they're not someone who could transmit HIV. Um, and it makes people feel like they are attractive, that they're connected, they're, they're, they're desirable, and that there's less burden. What do we need to do to have that same conversation in prevention? How do you generate not only interest in prevention, but demand? And it tends to be, what's what's good for me about this? And so I think that we need to do a, a better job. And I think at CDC, we're working on it. And I think I've done, I've made some strides, but more to come of like really 
how can we d- generate demand for people? And what does it mean to sort of make this not just something that is about ending an epidemic, but about making my life better um, in the prevention space as well? And I think that though I love talking about ending epidemics because I think it's feasible, even though we don't have a, a, a cure or a vaccine, um, I think that that sort of taking it back down to that behavioral piece of like, what what do people really want out of prevention? and And how do you better make it something that is desirable rather than something that's imposed upon them as an intervention because they're in a community that is somehow stigmatized as potentially not transmitters of HIV, but acquirers of HIV. So it's that that there's a that second side of that coin is fascinating. And that I think needs a lot of conversation. Some of it has to do with where you're putting the services. And so I think that efforts to put services near sexual health environments is really important because then it becomes a part of other services you need work to try to embed prevention, status-neutral prevention in transgender health environments, in women's health environments, in drug user health environments, really sort of go to the point that, that this is another part of, of what you would do for your health as something that's that's desirable rather than imposed on you. I'm not sure if you can see me, but I'm giving you snaps right now. I think that's exactly where we need to be. Uh, I can feel um, the snap. There you go. That sounds great. <laughs> I think that's exactly where we need to be. And I think that that's so important. I, I mean, I, I take care of a number of patients that are from communities of color, that are trans individuals that are living in the city um, that really do need kind of those comprehensive healthcare services. They need primary care. They need HIV prevention. They need hormonal care. They need to make sure that we're providing all of the sort of resources they need kind of wrapped up together. And we are fortunate being in New York, because we have programs that help uninsured individuals and people that, that aren't documented, like some of the ADAP and, a- and PrEP app programs that exist here due to the, the resources that Charles and the New York State Department of Health have put together. But I think that we're missing, we still need to make sure that we can create more settings where people can get that kind of care, where they can get that complete holistic care to take care of them as individuals in a sex positive environment, where they're positive, where they're happy, where, they're, where they're, they can make sure that they can express themselves in ways that, that are going to be okay. Because just because people are having what the medical community may consider, quote unquote, I'm giving air quotes right now, high risk sex, doesn't necessarily mean that what that is, is that we really are having risk that needs to be done in a way that's different. We need to make sure that those individuals are getting the best kind of health care and the best kind of preventative care around the world that we can offer. Well, Dr. Rosenthal, Dr. Daskalakis, and Dr. Gonzalez, this was extremely insightful. And I think our audience would be very thankful for it. So I appreciate all of you joining us on 20-Minute Health Talk. And to you, the listener, thanks for tuning in. I'm David Reichel. Have a great day. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20-Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.